Chapter Thirteen of the Sheridan Road Mystery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sheridan Road Mystery by Paul and Mabel Thorne. Chapter Thirteen: Startling Disclosures. Why is it that businessmen who pride themselves on their astuteness almost invariably slip up somewhere? Thought Marsh as he left the LaSalle Trust Building and walked north on LaSalle Street. This thought was occasioned by the fact that Hunt had neglected to ask Marsh for his address and telephone number. It might be, of course, that the man had taken it for granted that his name and address would be readily found in the telephone directory. Though this explanation passed through his mind, he was more inclined to believe that Hunt's intense interest in the matter, or possibly a newly aroused fear, created by Marsh's reference to the peculiar attitude in which he was placed, had driven the subject of details out of Hunt's mind. Marsh had come downtown with the intention of giving his present address, but as the interview progressed, a feeling grew upon him that it might be just as well at this time to give some downtown business address. The fact that no inquiry had been made on this point relieved him of the necessity of giving a fictitious address on the spur of the moment. His next step, however, must be the securing of such an address, for it was beyond question that during his next interview with Hunt this information would have to be given." Marsh glanced over his shoulder at the great clock in the Board of Trade building, which keeps guard over LaSalle Street. It was just twelve o'clock, and he reasoned that the people he contemplated questioning would probably be going to lunch. He decided to spend the next hour, therefore, in securing some sort of office address. By this time he had reached Madison Street, and turning east, looked over the buildings as he passed along, with the idea of selecting one in which a temporary office might be secured. At the corner of Madison Street and Wabash Avenue, he stopped and looked around him. On one corner was the building of a great department store. On the other three corners, big office buildings towered above him. At this corner also, here was one of the Madison Street stations of the elevated railroad system. Certainly, it was a most logical location for a man in his supposed line of work. So he entered one of the buildings, approached the starter in front of the elevators, and inquired if he knew anyone who would rent desk room. The starter furnished him with the names and room numbers of two places where he might inquire. The first of these which he visited proved satisfactory. He arranged with the young woman in charge to receive all mail and telephone calls for him and forward these to his regular address. Making a note of the telephone number, he paid two months' rent in advance, so as to get the matter off his mind, and returned to the street. The details of this arrangement had taken but a short time so Marsh went up to the men's grill maintained by a nearby department store, intending to eat a leisurely lunch in one of the secluded booths. As he sat studying the menu, a small finger suddenly began to direct his attention to certain items, while a soft voice whispered in his ear, "'How do you do, Mr. Marsh?' In such work as his, startling things were apt to occur at any moment, so Marsh gave no outward indication of his surprise. "'How do you do?' he returned, without looking up, but his mind was working rapidly to place the voice. "'What are you doing here?' the voice asked. "'You know better than to ask that question, Miss Allen.' Marsh now glanced up with a smile. The waitress stood up, and to anyone across the room it would have appeared as if they were merely discussing his order, which she was writing on a pad. "'If you are still engaged in counterfeiting work,' the girl said, "'I may be able to give you a valuable tip.' "'All right,' said Marsh. Bring me one of those oyster pies and a cup of coffee. We'll have a chat when you come back. In a few minutes she was back with his order, and talked rapidly in a guarded voice as she placed the silver on the table and arranged his dishes. 
"'About this time yesterday I had four men at this table, and caught snatches of their conversation. I put the facts together about like this. There is a house in the suburbs, near Chicago, where a counterfeiting plant has been in operation. In some way the attention of the police has been attracted, and the whole outfit is to be cleaned out as soon as they think they can get away safely. I have no idea regarding the location, but if you are looking anything up, this may be a hint for you. Thanks, Miss Allen, it is a hint. Without further words, she hurried away to attend to another table. Marsh knew that the girl who had just given him this information was a government operative, like himself. He would have liked to learn more, if possible, especially the descriptions of the men, but he did not know the nature of the work she was engaged in, and feared that any further contact between them might be unwise. For a moment he thought of slipping her his telephone number, but the cautiousness bred by years of experience warned him that telephones, like walls, sometimes have ears. However, he realized that she had told him something worthwhile. It was unlikely that there was more than one counterfeiting band in Chicago at this time. She had given him a clue, which, like the cuff button, might tie up at any moment with other developments. Moreover, he now knew that his men were planning to get away, and that something must be done in a hurry. After finishing his luncheon, he wrote his newly acquired downtown address on a slip of paper, wrapped it in a bill, and then signaled to the girl that he desired his check. He handed her the bill carelessly, and said in a low voice, without looking up, "'Something inside for you.' She returned in a moment with his change, and as she laid it on the table, said simply, "'I understand.' Marsh then started out on his search for information regarding Merton. While Marsh was confident that he would get the most important part of his information at the hotel where Merton had lived, he decided to work up to that point rather than start there. One reason for this decision lay in the fact that night employees of the hotel could probably give him more valuable information regarding Merton's movements than those on duty during the day. He was only a block from Michigan Avenue, where the clubs at which Merton spent most of his time were located. At these places he secured little information that would further his quest. Merton had impressed the employees of the clubs simply as a quiet man who had dropped in to read his newspapers or a book or have quiet chats with other members with whom he was acquainted. Occasionally he was known to engage in a game of billiards or cards. It was hardly the life of a man who could have such close associations with a gang of counterfeiters as to draw upon himself an act of revenge, or the necessity of removing him as a matter of protection. So far as Marsh could discover, Merton had never presented a questionable bill to the clubs. In fact, so far as anyone connected with them could recollect, all payments of any character had been made by check. Marsh had pursued inquiries along this line because, while almost anyone is liable at one time or another to be in possession of counterfeit money, such a happening in Merton's case might have possessed unusual significance. It was Marsh's desire to ascertain, so far as possible, if there had been any connection of even a remote character between Merton and the counterfeiters. Unless some connection were established, it would be hard to believe that Merton had been the Sheraton Road victim, yet the coincidences of this disappearance, the evidences of a crime, and the cuff-button initialed M, possessed too strong a significance to be entirely disregarded. At the third club Marsh secured practically no information. Merton had been an infrequent visitor, and had made little or no impression upon the employees. Walking north on Dearborn Street and across Madison Street, on his way from this club to Merton's hotel, Marsh thought quickly. If he could not at this time establish a connection, then at least he would try to ascertain 
the nature of the bait which had been held out to take this man of quiet habits to the north side at two o'clock in the morning. On reaching the hotel, he found that it was still too early to interview the people he wished to see, so he sat down in one of the big chairs in the lobby to pass the time studying the aspects of the case. Even when his mind was busy, Marsh's eyes were on the alert, and faces met under the most trivial circumstances photographed themselves upon his memory. His eyes rested casually upon a man who sat opposite him, looking over an evening paper. Gradually Marsh began to feel that the face was familiar. With this realization came the recollection that the man had seated himself very quickly after Marsh had selected his chair. Perhaps his recognition of the face was something that came out of the past, but Marsh always endeavored to connect every noticeable incident with the problem of the moment. It was not long, therefore, before he had placed the man. On coming out of the office building, where he had made his temporary address arrangements, he had passed this man standing near the door, and also remembered seeing the same man in the grill-room where he had lunched. The fact that the man was now seated near him in the hotel lobby was more than a coincidence. Marsh's eyes roved about the lobby with apparently careless interest, and not even the man across from him could have guessed that he had noted anything or become more watchful than before. However, he was planning action. If this man was watching him, there could be but one reason, his connection with the present case. If he was connected with this case, then he was evidently one of the men they wanted. Marsh intended to be sure. To change the situation from watch to watcher would involve some quick and clever work. Marsh pondered. As the bellboy passed, Marsh called to him. Slipping a coin into the boy's hand, he said, I had an appointment here with a Mr. Morgan. See if you can locate him. As the boy started off calling the name, Marsh watched the man opposite out of the corner of his eye. The man threw down his newspaper, stretched and yawned, while his eyes wandered about the lobby. His movements were of a very casual sort, but to Marsh's watchful eye it was noticeable that his glances were actually following the bellboy seeking Morgan. Marsh was now convinced that his actions were under surveillance, and he next planned how to throw the man off. As he sat intent on this problem, he was startled to hear the bellboy say, "'Here's the gentleman, sir,' and looking up, Marsh saw Morgan standing in front of him. The training of both men forbade any indication of the astonishment both felt, but looking into the other's eyes, each read the question there. Marsh jumped up, and holding out his hand, exclaimed boisterously, "'Where have you been hiding yourself? I'd about given you up.' "'I'm sorry I'm late,' apologized Morgan, in an equally loud voice, taking the cue. He pulled an adjoining chair close to Marsh and sat down. "'Now,' said Marsh, in a low voice, "'it is probably needless to tell you not to make your observation too obvious, but I want to call your attention to the man sitting opposite.' Morgan nodded. "'He has been following me all afternoon,' continued Marsh, in the same guarded voice. "'As long as I sit here, I surmise that he will stay where he is. That will give you time to slip out, pick up one of your men, and get him on the job. I suspect it will be worth while getting a line on him.' "'That's easy,' returned Morgan. "'I'll have him locked up inside of the next ten minutes.' "'No,' said Marsh. "'That would be taking too big a chance.' "'On the contrary,' said Morgan. "'It would be taking no chance at all.' That man has been wanted for a year for pulling over a confidence game. I won't mention any names, because lips sometimes tell stories to watchful eyes. You just sit here, and you'll see something in a few minutes. With that, Morgan went out. A few minutes later, a man strolled through the lobby and approached the stranger. He leaned over and whispered to him, and the two went out together. 
Marsh was congratulating himself that when this man got to headquarters he might be made to talk to some effect when Morgan and another man, whom Marsh easily recognized as a detective, approached. "'Where in the blazes did your man go?' exclaimed Morgan. Marsh stared for a moment. "'Why, I thought your man got him,' he said. "'Somebody came in and quietly took him out.' "'Good night!' exclaimed Morgan. "'Somebody must have tipped him off.' He turned to the man with him. "'No use hanging around now. Our bird's flown.' As the man left them, Morgan sat down again beside Marsh. "'How the deuce did you know I was here?' he asked. "'I didn't,' returned Marsh. "'I had that bellboy paid you to test the man across from me. I never had such a surprise in my life as when you turned up. What were you doing here?' he added. "'The chief asked me to look into this Merton case. What were you doing here?' "'The same thing,' replied Marsh. "'Looking up Merton?' "'Yes.' "'Well, that's funny. What for?' "'Because I strongly suspect he is the murdered man in our case.' Morgan gasped. End of chapter 13